would you do if you were in the middle of nowhere and needed to have some sort of protection for your little piggies and toesies and, you know, feetsies? Well, um, that's not quite what we're going to talk about, but we're also going to talk about that on today's episode of the Movement Movement Podcast. This is the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with your feet, because, you know, those things are your foundation. And we break down the propaganda and the mythology, sometimes the straight out lies you've been told about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body again, but more importantly, to what it takes to you know, run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or CrossFit or be out in the middle of nowhere and to do that enjoyably and efficiently and effectively. Um, and we call it the movement movement because we're creating a movement that involves you. It's really easy. I'll tell you how in a sec about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do. I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host. And the part that involves you is really easy. Just go, when you get a chance, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you need to do to join. There's no fee. There's no secret handshake. There's no song you need to sing. That's just where you can find all the previous episodes of the podcast. Um, and you can find all the ways you can engage with us on social media. Find us on YouTube and Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And again, if you want to help, just give us a thumbs up or a like or subscribe. Hit the bell icon on YouTube. Um, you know what it, the drill is simple. If you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. So, Sam, tell people who you are, why they might know you, and what you're doing here. So, uh, my name's Sam Mauser. Um, I was recently a participant of the Naked and Afraid 21-Day uh, Survival Challenge. And in my day-to-day life, I'm a mental health support worker. And uh, right now, I'm here to talk about what I did to prepare and train my feet and uh, prepare them for the onslaught that was the Naked and Afraid Challenge. Well, why don't you tell, for people who haven't seen the show at all, tell them about what Naked and Afraid is. I mean, it's one of those titles that kind of says it all, but not quite. So hit people with what (laughs) that's all about. So Naked and Afraid is uh, essentially two individuals. Uh, They're dropped off in a totally unfamiliar environment, absolutely naked, (laughs) totally stripped bare, with only the most essential of survival tools. And uh, these two strangers have to uh, endure this 21-day ordeal. They can only eat what they uh, can capture or kill or forage. Uh, They can only drink the water that they find. And uh, at the end of the 21 days, they have to still have the strength remaining to extract from the survival location and get to rescue so let's start, let's start with naked and but with a few survival tools. What was the list of tools that you had at your hand? Well, it just so happens that I have them right here. So I took uh, my knife, which is uh, I've left nice and grubby. Hold on, hold on. That is very that is very much a um, uh, a crocodile <laughs> Dundee. This is a knife. That's a hell of a knife. Oh yeah. Oh, Crocodile Dundee would, uh, if that kid had pulled this one out back on him, he'd he'd have legged it, he'd have run. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you had a knife. What else? And wait, so wait, Uh, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Did they give you like um, uh, some parameters about what you could bring with you or did they supply things? I don't remember how it works. It's actually very interesting that you asked me that question, Stephen. So if you turn up without anything, they will supply you with something which might not be the most optimal tool they'll probably give you a knife and a fire starter but it won't be one of your selection and obviously the quality might not be guaranteed so obviously it's best that you bring your items from home um 
usually each team will have a pot, a knife, a fire starter, and in our case, a bow as well um, that my partner had as her personal item. Uh, and I know you bow hunt yourself, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Is that you, have you been a hunter before? No, I actually have. Are haven't. you into archery? I'm. Do you do no. archery? Then? Uh, yeah, I've heard I, I do archery. Yeah, but I've never, I've never yeah. been a hunter as an archer. Um, I've been a target shooter, and um, so something I adore. But I, it's something that I think about often. That if I had to be somewhere, um, archery would be my best choice for being able to uh, get food. Well, it, it just so happens that I'm in exactly the same boat. It's there's no bow, legal bow hunting in, in the UK, so it's only target true for myself. And uh, it was for my partner Lily up until uh, we ended up on our wild adventure and uh, she managed to bag us a jackrabbit, uh, which was fantastic and uh, was definitely the the big score, the big protein win that got us through to the end of the challenge. And I was so grateful to her and the rabbit um, <laughs> for their efforts and their life. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very Buddhist thing um, to be thankful for the rabbit or to the well, rabbit. I, I think that one of the lessons that the challenge has taught taught me or reaffirmed to me is how 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 precious every morsel of protein we consume is and what goes into producing it and uh, retrieving it and uh, you know I think a lot of people cringe at the, at the at the mention of hunting but if they knew what a lot of the creatures that end up in those little plastic cellophane packets in the supermarket went through to get there I think they would probably change their tune and it's made me actually think a lot more about that you know, is a, is a moment of, su- of suffering at the tip of a, the hunter's arrow worse than living one's entire existence in the cage, you know. Or, I know or, which way I'd rather go. Or even just your existence as a, especially a prey animal, where your entire life is basically running away from things that could eat you. So it is, you know, it is a shame that we are so disconnected uh, from the f- production of the food that we eat. It definitely would change people's opinion. And many people think they would instantly become vegetarians. Um, I don't know that that's true. I think they would instantly have a different understanding of what food is, um, what it means, what it does. And to have an active role in providing your own food, I mean, that's a it's a very rare thing for people these days. Uh, yeah. And I think it's something that we're becoming more and more disconnected from as, as a kind of our civilization progresses and advances, which arguably is a good thing for the most part. But uh, it still makes me think that maybe every individual should experience that or be given the opportunity to experience that. And as you say, I think there were some, there would be many people that I, I can't do this. I will, I, I would yeah. rather be vegan or, you know, and fair play. I would totally understand that. I think there would be a lot of people that would uh, respect their meat more where, and their protein and where it comes from uh, going forward in their lives as a result of, of, of doing this challenge. And, um, I, th- I think there would be those that would be very much interested in the quality, not just the quality of the, the meat itself, but the actual life that the animal has. And I actually do believe those two things are very closely intertwined. I yeah. must say that that jackrabbit we consumed was, you know, you, if it was served up in a restaurant, it would be, it was the most beautiful and delicate meat because it was grass fed. It was, it <laughs> lived its life in, in the open, in the open air. 
So, yeah, oh. maybe it tasted a little bit more delicious because I'd starved for 10 days previous. <laughs> there is that. The, I mean, there's so many questions that I have from just the very beginning of what you said, but I want to start stick on this one. So how, if at all, has your diet changed since the challenge? Um, well, I think in my house, we've cut down, in our household, we've cut down a lot more on our food waste. And we now use a set meal delivery service. Um which allows us to select a much wider variety of food, but at the same time, it's all pre-portioned. So there's far less waste, if at all any, except what might be left on one of my son's plates, for example. But that, that's been one of the main main switches we've, we, we've done in my household. And it's actually working out to save us money as well, which is, is fantastic. After, after uh, capturing and um, eating a rabbit, do you find that you even have just, whether you do it or not, have a, um, a willingness to experiment with other kinds of food that you hadn't had before? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, when we were out there, we ate, I mean, the first thing we ate was a, a Western Diamondback rattlesnake. And again, I mean, you can see it on the episode. I, I had my uh, my trepidation about tucking into it, but again, and it was only the first night, so I wasn't particularly hungry. But I knew I needed that fuel because I was going to be very hungry in the next seventy-two hours. And uh, I was actually surprised and delighted with how delicious it was. It was very good. Again, we had twenty-five crawdads, crawfish, and again, although they're a tiny morsel, again, delicious. And I do think that a lot of the the foods to summarize heavily that people eat on making the fry do actually tend to be a delicacy somewhere. Um, so yes, um, it's it's definitely get, given me the mindset to be more uh, open minded about trying new foods um, and never saying no to anything. And you know, if not a delicacy, somewhere the exact opposite. It's something that people eat regularly that we're so uh, that we don't eat that we think that there's something wrong with that, but it's something very, very common. I think about like larvae and ants and insects of various kinds that in many places, especially Southeast Asia, very, very common around here. People just can't wrap their brain around it. Yeah. And again, as part of my research, there is actually very few insects that we as humans can't consume um, Mm -hmm. because during our evolutionary process, we ate a lot of insects. It was probably one of our staples. And on that note, uh, I will. I would like to say that grasshoppers are actually delicious, <laughs> like little frazzled up chicken nuggets. <laughs> <when they're good. laughs> the world's tiniest chicken uh, uh, drumstick. Um, so, all right. So, yeah. so backing up a giant step to where we started. So, you had your knife. What else did you have with you, or what else were you given? So, knife, pot, fire starter, and bow. And that's it. You get a little satchel bag that has a mic pack in it and your microphone is embedded inside your necklace. Uh, you're given a very simple map and off you go. <laughs> where did they drop you? So we were in the Sabanosamit region of New Mexico uh, in the high desert. It was actually one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life, actually. Um, but it was very arid. And it was a very brutal, dry place. But the main thing that surprised me about it is how cold it got, especially as soon as the sun goes down. That's where I was going to go. Unimaginably. Yeah, I even alluded it to on the the episode, on the challenge. I can't believe I'm in the high desert and I was dithering wet in this horrible rainstorm, freezing to death. 
in the middle of the desert. It was, you know, I was, I was just thinking, how am I going to explain this to my family if they pulled me out with hypothermia from the desert? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and P.S., having watched the episode, I'm asking a bunch of these questions for the people who haven't. So once you realized uh, something that those of us who are living at altitude, we're in Colorado, experience on a daily basis, that exact thing is the sun goes down and suddenly the temperature drops 20, 30 degrees. Although sometimes, frankly, it'll just do that in the middle of the day. One year, this is, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was living in an apartment right on Boulder Creek and I would swim in the creek almost every day in the summer. And I got out of the creek, it's like 85 degrees. And I bump into a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to in a little while in the parking lot of our apartment complex. And by the time we were done talking, which is maybe two hours later, it was snowing. So temperature changes are very common for those of us at altitude. So what did you figure out about how to handle the both temperatures, both extremes? Well, the, the main thing was there's very little time once arriving in the region that you're going to undertake the challenge to actually being deployed onto it. So there's no time for any real genuine acclimatization or, or, or anything of such. So the best you can do is keep on top of your hydration as best as you can. If it's hot, try and get the water as cold as possible. When it goes cold at night, get the warm drinks down your throat and stay close to the fire. Uh, Lily, my partner, she constructed a beautiful long fire um, which is actually normally used in like um, subarctic regions. It's quite popular in Alaska to build like a long fire, like the length of your body. We actually found that was very, very good at night. And we also buried the fire pit about a foot down. So it heated the soil around us as well that we were lying on. And um, it took the edge off the cold is what I would say, um, enough, enough for us to be able to endure it. But still, it was quite uncomfortable. But we'd have been in real trouble had we not had the long fire for the evenings and our hot drinks. I'm sure. And so, obviously, um, one of the things that people, mm, how to say this, in my world, in the natural movement world, I find it very um, entertaining. And by entertaining, I mean annoying, <laughs> where people will, I'll say something about being barefoot or being uh, in shoes that don't have a whole bunch of cushioning. And people will jump to these ideas about what would happen if you were in bare feet or if you weren't you know, using arch support or motion control or whatever, that are situations that like never happen. I mean, here's the simplest one. My favorite one is I talk about going barefoot. And they go, what if you step in dog shit? I go, when's the last time you did that? And they go, I don't know, like 20 years ago. It's like, well, then why are you going to start doing it now if you take off your shoes? And so the idea of being in the desert, being dropped off without footwear is one of those things where people have a lot of ideas about how uh, you want people to survive from that alone. So talk about your feet and footwear. So uh, in the run up to the challenge, I knew a couple of months before I was going you know, so I had time to prepare. And the first thing, and, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your podcast, but I've, I've worn zeros for some time, actually. I um, remember seeing a, a video about Matt Graham, who um, talked about the zero genesis. So obviously he does a lot of barefoot and sandal, sandal running in Hirachi. And, uh, you know, talking about the tactility and being able to use your feet as an extra sensory apparatus, that kind of thing. And I, my first pair were Hannah because I was I was a little bit anxious about having all my toes exposed and everything. So I liked the Hannah because they had that nice kind of 
suede cover and that kind of trainer look. Uh, and I wore those to destruction. Um, but obviously, because I knew I was going on the challenge, I went for the Genesis and purchased a pair of these simply because they're the simplest design, um, literally just enough to cover my feet. And also I could study them in case I needed to make some. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so, so Matt Graham. So, I hope that doesn't get me in trouble for copyright or anything. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's my favorite thing. I love it when I meet people who say, I followed your instructions online, but I've never bought anything from you. It's like, perfect. That's why I put everything online. I want people to have the experience. And Matt Graham, for people who don't know, uh, Matt was the was on a show called Dual Survivor, and uh, Matt replaced a guy named Cody Lundin. And Cody, uh, on one episode, made a pair of Warache sandals. Now he didn't do the lacing quite right, but they still worked for him. And this is shouldn't be surprising because this is basically what humans have done since the beginning of humans. So you know the Genesis sandal. It's something to protect your foot, something to hold it on your foot. That's really all you need, except for when you're in a place where a little bit of insulation could come in handy. Well, to be honest, they, they were the perfect shoe, if we're going to call them that, to train my feet, because obviously they're still very comfortable, but they have that slightly abrasive surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it's like um, it's kind of like meant to be like an all-terrain tire rubber. Yep. Um, so obviously it's very hard wearing and just enough friction on the skin at the bottom of my feet to help generate those, 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 you know, that naked and afraid gold, those calluses um, <laughs> and just harden my feet up ready for what was coming. But there's, there's a lot more to it than that. I think, I think it's not just the fact that it was preparing the surface, the epidermis on my, on my feet. I think it's also the nerve endings as well. Um, as you allude to, because they're so incredibly thin, you can feel, every single pebble or stone you step on, not in necessarily with any discomfort, but you know it's there and it's giving all those nerves a little snippet of what they're going to experience. Now, again, I'm not a doctor, um, but also uh, what I will say is I am convinced that had I undertaken the challenge without wearing these in the run-up, um, I think it would have been a much more brutal experience for my feet. Um, it would have been quite a shock for them yeah. um, to go into that environment because there was a lot of cacti, there was a lot of sharp stones, there was a lot of nasty pebbles, there was a lot of thorns. Now, I won't lie, I think within the first five days of being totally barefoot in the challenge, my feet hardened more than in a month of wearing the Genesis. That being said, every minute wearing this pair of shoes definitely prepared my feet for that challenge, got the patina on them that they needed <laughs> to be able to stride out there. So I'm very grateful for you, Stephen. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Well, you know, people have a mistaken idea about um, the purpose of footwear or, or being barefoot. So like calluses are not necessary, but what does happen is when you're using your feet, especially on surfaces that are challenging, you do the skin thickens a little bit, but to your point, you become very sensitive to what you're stepping on and your reflex arc and your brain get very good at making these micro adjustments to allow you to walk on things um, better or respond to things and step off of things more quickly if it's something unpleasant. I mean, I remember when I first started going barefoot, there were things in my driveway that I couldn't step on. And a year later, I'm walking on them without a problem. And it's not because I got numb, quite the opposite. It's because my feet became more flexible 
I was stepping in a way where I wasn't just overweighting, just putting all my weight on one foot before I knew what I was stepping on. And I would argue that, um, but I have no proof for this, but it feels like my reflex arc improved as well, that I was just reflexively stepping off of things that were unpleasant more quickly than just, you know, kind of committing to that step and crossing my fingers. So um, there's definitely that component. Uh, what else did you discover, though, once you were like barefoot, barefoot, which is it's definitely a, a different experience and um, uh, in your situation, even more so? At first, it is quite an experience. Uh, you know, there's walking around barefoot at home. There's going barefoot on the beach. There's maybe slipping your shoes off for a barefoot walk here and there. But again, you psychologically, you're going to prepare the. You're going to think about the place where you're going to slip your shoes off, even if you're on your hike, and it's normally going to be on the grass. Obviously, that's not an option out there. So it is. Uh, I mean, obviously. It's the whole thing is a lot to get used to. I mean, I'm not really a walking around naked kind of guy. Um, <laughs> well, uh, let me let me interject. I am a walking around naked kind of guy, but only in the confines of my house. After that, yes, in your home. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, being in one of the, where where it was pretty much flat from horizon to horizon, <laughs> being totally but naked was was quite a thing and then obviously stepping off i mean you know you're thinking about the cameras you're thinking about everything and then all of a sudden one of my peers is another survivor who said this the moment that first cactus needle pierces your flesh the, the first thorn the first sharp rock everything's suddenly very real <laughs> and that was a space what my feet told me about the challenge <laughs> very quickly how much trouble i was in i was concerned about the heat on the ground as well and you know am i going to blister up and what have you and actually again i think my feet performed very well now whether that's the preparation i did in these beforehand i don't know you know perhaps the circulation being improved was removing the heat from the pad of my foot more efficiently i don't know but yeah the very quickly my feet became acclimatized and i would say there was maybe five or six occasions throughout the challenge where you know as you say i wasn't probing correctly with my feet i was distracted on other things and i trod on a cactus or stubbed a toe or something like that that being said nothing nothing significant out there um that you know no thorns i couldn't pull out and to be honest out of all my body um my feet performed fantastically i was very impressed with them out there actually aside from a few bumps, scrapes um, and stubs, all went well with them. And I also think as well with the the zero elevation footwear, it adjusts the musculature, the muscle structure in your legs. So obviously if you're in normal trainers, your heels are quite high up and your muscles are sat differently. So I actually think I, I, I got into that kind of, there was no genuine serious discomfort or anything as my body adjusted its gait to being barefoot. So again, that's um it definitely reduced the shock to to my system uh, and it was one less thing for me to worry about so i could focus on more important things like uh, the food the shelter yeah the the little things um you know you mentioned circulation <laughs> you mentioned the, the circulation possibly being a part of it this is something that i hope someday somebody studies because i'm also convinced that um that your circulation does change you develop capillary more capillaries in the soles of your feet when you start spending more time barefoot. I mean, my first, when we started the company, um, it was in November and I was just kind of curious, like how long would it be that I'd be okay wearing sandals or going barefoot? 
And the next thing I knew, it was spring. And over time, um, it seems like the capillarization in my feet has changed because when I'm out and it's cold, my hands and my face can be really cold, but my feet typically feel fine. And someday I hope someone actually does a study on how you do acclimatize. I mean, clearly humans do that because we live in all different environments. But to see that happening sort of in real time, that almost evolutionary process would be really, really cool to study, I think. Yes, uh, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be inclined to agree. That would be quite fascinating to find out what is it. You know, the cold didn't seem to bite my toes as much until I'd lost quite a significant amount of weight. It's um, There's definitely something going on. I'd also be intrigued to know um, how quickly does the process reverse, if at all, if you mm-hmm. stop and and go back to... That's interesting. I wonder if it's sort of like building muscle it takes a, it takes quite a bit of effort to build it but once you have it maintaining it is very simple so like you have to lift you know th- like let's call it three or four times a week to generate enough stimulus to build muscle but once you have it you can lift like once a week and that's enough of a signal to your body to hold on to it so i wonder if there's a similar similar effect to that i would think that there would be because the idea that when you've made any sort of adaptation that it would revert quickly seems a little like it non-optimal like if you're going to make that change you know you, part of your body yeah. might be going eh, this could stay this way or it could get worse i think my, my, my theory on it would be you know it's we just see like the sofa effect in microcosm you know yeah. a, a fancy pair of trainers with all the the squidgy pads in it is what just a really comfy couch for our trotters for our feet um and that's nice um but at some stage you have to get off the couch and you know actually i don't know what you'd call it, workout mats for your feet maybe um, yeah, to give them that exercise to give them that experience you know and i hope no one watching is thinking i don't want to give my feet a workout you it's the best thing you can possibly do um yeah. there's no going back for me now um no, that's for sure you know your feet are your foundation this is screamingly obvious and people don't realize um that their feet have become weak except for the fact that they somehow think that they need all these this support and all this cushioning, all this padding, which in, just makes no sense. Um, but it, part of it is also the industry convincing people that there's your feet are fundamentally flawed and therefore you need something. So, but anyway, be that as it may. Now, let me jump. Let me jump on to a totally different thing. Speaking as one reality person to another, although our experience was like 45 minutes in Shark Tank versus 21 days in the high desert of um, New Mexico. What can you, and I say this knowing there's some things that where you may be legally bound to not answer this question, what can you tell us about the difference between reality TV and reality? In other words, what happened that we didn't see on camera? The main thing to remember is actually what happens is genuinely, I, I can only speak for our experience as opposed to the experiences of others because I wasn't there, but... Um, you know, is is the how everything becomes condensed, and it kind of uh, it creates a narrative, um, which you might not have perceived so much when we were out there. Like I knew that certain things, like I got that as we were cleaning the snake, it, it erupted its bowels all over me. Like the moment it happened, you can see me look at the camera as if to go, "Well, that's going to be on telly." You know, there's those moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but then there's other things that, you know, I didn't even, you would never even contemplate that they would be able to get in. Um, but 
the main thing to remember is every hour we're out there on a mean average basis, the, the audience is going to see five minutes between two and five minutes of each hour. Uh, so obviously everything becomes much more compressed, much more caricatured, dare I say. That being said, what you see on the screen is a fair representation of what happened in the order that it happened. And um, so I can't speak for any other reality show, but all I can say about Naked and Afraid is that it is the realest thing I've ever experienced. It's it's almost like there's a, a disconnect between doing the challenge, which I, I my mind kind of prepared for it and, and approached it like a, a, I'm going to participate in my favourite sport. It's not an endurance sport that's over distance. It's an endurance sport that's over time, um, which is a an interesting take on an athletic feat, if you want to call it that, um, because it's a test of your mind and your metabolism and, you know, how you're going to expend that currency of body fat and muscle or energy, whatever you have, um, to best to best effect. Um, but I really do think that what happened out there is is is... Uh, the episode is a fair reflection of that which uh, to be honest when I got there at first you're thinking oh is there really going to be you know hotels or what's this going to be like (laughs) you get there and it's like they say like you're here we'll see you here in 21 days (laughs) and it's it all gets very very real very very quickly So, Tell me about this experience you've had. What was the shark tank business? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, shark tank? Well, ours was much easier because we we're in the tank for about 40, 40, 45 minutes. But what you see on camera is actually very different than what actually happened for real. So um, because we have, you know, we have 45 minutes gets cut down to about basically seven or eight minutes, really. And we were very clear about what we did or didn't want, the kind of deal we were willing to make. So whenever one of the sharks said, I'm out, and they cut to us going, what? You know, we pretty much didn't do that because we didn't care. We were just going to go on to the next one. And so um, what you see is not the order in which things happen. The show makes it look like it's a normal conversation about your business, but it is far from a normal conversation. The sharks are always trying to like say something where they gotcha. And, um, and so, and they're often not paying very much attention to you. They're in their own private Idaho, just trying to figure out how they can make good television about them. And so they're coming up with one liners that they think are going to make it on the preview. And it's, um, uh, they'll, one of the sharks will ask you five questions. And then a minute later, another one will ask you 10 questions. And if you switch, the first one gets mad. And if you don't switch, the second one gets mad. And of course, Barbara's line, her opening line was, I hated you from the moment you walked out here. And I just laughed. Oh my goodness. What are you going to say? So, but what I can tell you about Shark Tank, and this is a behind the scenes thing, is when we walked out of there, um, I just turned to Lena. I said, boy, that's not what we expected. And I could think of, I mean, I have a master's degree in film. I could think of a million different ways of editing that to make us look like complete idiots if they cut it the way they they could. And so we talked to our producers and mentioned that. And they said, no, 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 we don't want anyone to look bad. If, you know, we, we're a Disney owned network. We want people to want to be on the show. If someone looks bad, it was way worse in real life. And I had two stories that echoed that. One is someone that we know who was on the show. She was so upset about how badly it went that she almost divorced her husband over it because he decided not to be on the show with her. 
So she felt that she just, you know, he threw her out to the lions. Um, when the show aired, it looked pretty good because she's a smart, funny, attractive woman, you know, and they, there were a couple of things that she answered a question badly, but mostly look good. I have another uh, friend who likes to claim that they gave him a really bad edit and made him look like a complete ass. And I have said to him, I know you pretty well. You got a really good edit. <laughs> That's I, mean, you know, I like the guy, but he's not fit for human consumption. And by the way, if the, the people who might be listening, there's like four people who might think I'm talking about them. You're probably all wrong. But anyway, so that's the difference. But so for us, hey, some of those people are the best people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Everyone. Great television. Great television. So um, so but backing up, like for us, you know, people said to us, hey, you should be on Shark Tank after we had started our business. And we looked into it. And went, wow, we should. What was it that made you? want to be on the show on Naked and Afraid and what was the process of auditioning, et cetera, until you got on the show? Uh, that's, that's a very good question, actually. So I've actually been a fan of the show since the beginning. I've always liked survival shows. I mean, we got to talking about Matt Graham earlier on. I obviously watched Jewel and followed him quite quite closely on Facebook, which is how I first got introduced to Zeros. But yeah, um, I remember watching EJ, EJ Snyder stride out into the Savannah doing the pilot. Like, and I was just, what is this? This is the wildest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, <laughs> this is absolutely crazy. Who'd watch this? Oh, yeah, me. <laughs> and I, I remember, and I, I, I was just hooked from the moat from as soon as it started. And I was posting casually on Facebook because not many people watch it in the UK. It's, uh, you know, it's like, does anyone watch this show? Does anyone else watch Naked and Afraid? And I got invited to join a private fan group. And um, we've only got about 14,000 members, but most of the cast are in there as well, folks that have been on the show. And I got to interacting with all the cast and all the legends that have done like, you know, a dozen challenges each. And it was amazing and a great community um, full of rich characters and what have you. And I started applying for the show um, to do a challenge, you know, with you know several times with various levels of effort. And it just so happened that, uh, you know, my my love and interest for the show, I'm a moderator for this fan group now. You know, I share stuff in there, I interview cast, we arrange lives. Uh, so my love of the show and I suppose the, the things that have happened in my life in the, in the run-up to it, you know, everything from childhood interest or scouts and army cadets, and um, I had a brief career in the military as well. All kind of culminated in, I suppose, if anyone can be qualified to give me a shot at maybe getting to the end. And uh, it all came together. And um, last February, I was contacted. Um, I thought it was a wind-up at first. I thought it was some kind of scam, because obviously I do stuff with the moderators. And I ended up searching for the person that, emailed me and I was like oh my goodness they're in the fan group it's real <laughs> um, so uh, um, and it, it went from four years of absolutely nothing happening to everything happening inside of a week you get EJ Snyder who's one of the best greatest survivalists in the world brings you up um, and he'd, I'd met him before and obviously it's I've got my you know my my background he knows my background he's like you know yeah i'm just i'm just ringing you up to do your survival rating this is just a formality at this stage and i was like oh my god <laughs> terrifying um and lo and behold by the autumn there i was out in new mexico you know up to my waist in snake poop and <laughs> <laughs> crawdads 
uh, running around with uh, my my Austrian survival goddess, and away we went. <laughs> so you're you're up to your up to your butt in snake poop. What were you doing about human poop? That's actually a good question. Now I've been listening to the podcast, and as I said, I've been a fan of the show for a very long time. Apparently, there's two camps in the old uh, the poo crew. So there's some folks that apparently will just like barely dig a dig a cat scrape and just right next to the shelter. Now I'm sorry, but I would be moving house if my partner had done that or myself. I thankfully we would both stuff how many calories it takes, half a mile, nice peaceful spot, birds tweeting, lots of deep zen breathing, and day seventeen. All the magic happened. Uh, covered it with some rocks and uh, had a, had a lovely bathe in one of the little pools and went about my day. <laughs> oh my god, I love it! I love it. I, I, um, I can't even think of how to wrap this up because we can keep doing this all day long. Um, oh, here, here's one last question because you you kind of referenced it. What changed with your body from day one to day twenty one, and then what changed after you got home? Uh, that's actually a very good question. And the answer is a lot. Some things quite significant, some things more subtle. So obviously my weight, my body mass changed. And again, while we're on the subject of feet and gait and walking, I actually think that, um, if I mean, you've seen the episode, I did put on as much weight as I safely could um, to participate. And you, by day 10, it's just gone. And so obviously as the challenge progresses, that like the difference in the mechanics of your body i mean imagine being a, a bipedal robot that's mass changes uh, mm. <laughs> throughout yeah. the process so it actually helps in a sense because as you said as you alluded to earlier on you're putting less pressure because there's less mass in your body but your gait has to change and your weight shifts um, and again when your body's switched to full ketosis and it really is you, it's not just your thought, uh, it's also the function of your body. So we'd be having, if we, you and I were out there, Stephen, we'd be having this conversation, but it would take three times longer. But we wouldn't know that because subjectively our brain's clock speed will have slowed down, that our time is subjectively still feeling the same. But after day five, the days just fly by. And it's because your subjective time, again, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I, I think that because of the the ketosis, you, your thoughts slow down, it's still the same. If anything, a little bit clearer, much more slow, much more measured. Um, and I think even once you're back to the land of carbs and processed sugar, you can still actually maintain a degree of that. I want to call it like a Zen state. I found it actually quite euphoric. Um, but my, my body physically, I felt the lack of protein around day 15, 16, and I felt my joints beginning to become quite clicky because obviously we store a lot of our protein in liquid in our joints. Once that's gone, oh, I, I felt my body felt like it was 80 years old. But just to wrap up what you asked me, when I got back uh, after three or four meals, after about a week, of being home, some good food, good food, a good variety of food, and loads of protein. Uh, my wife told me she said I looked like I was twenty one again. Um, you know, wow. effectively, it'd been a, an impressive fast and cleanse. And I got back, and I, to be honest, obviously, I looked extremely emaciated when I got out. But once hydrated and a couple of good meals down my neck, I looked in the best shape I've looked it for years. For years. 
Yeah, so it's not it's not all negative. So you need to combine naked and afraid and the biggest loser and you got something. The um, <laughs> the you know it's funny you mentioned I your thoughts your thoughts slowing down and time changing. I just read about the woman who uh, as an experiment they had her underground for six hundred days, and when they said all right time to come out she was stunned. She thought like 150, maybe 160 days had passed. She had no idea that it was that long. She also said she would have happily stayed and never left because it was just so pleasant for her. Um, She had no contact with the outside world other than they would give her food. They would take out her waste and trash. Um, And I, I don't know how she got books and things to knit and whatnot. She had very few activities, but just the idea that you would be that disconnected from time. And again, now she's underground, so there's no sun, there's no night, but um, to, to, to be, you know, four times, one quarter of the way off or or whatever that is 75% off about how much time has passed is almost inconceivable. So your, your story is fascinating because you still had days and nights, but still the feeling of time moving differently is really intriguing. Yeah, I think our brains can do a lot of things and our bodies, whether for me, I'm not a dude, it's all one one thing for me. I, you know, I, I think our brains and bodies can do a lot of things. And I mean, you know, to summarize heavily, once once your ass knows you, your brain's not quitting, it will adapt, it will figure something out, yep. it will build a house inside its head or subjectively slow time or whatever it needs to do to get by. You know, it didn't. I didn't experience it, but uh, I know when I was in the, the forces, actually, um, you had to do a horrible exercise where you have to dig trenches like it's World War One, and there's no all manually. And I remember some of my colleagues, some of my comrades, you know, hallucinating um, just from the sheer exhaustion of it. But no one was having, uh, of the two, uh, the two or three people that did, they weren't. Uh, unpleasant they were all very amusing things you know that they described experiencing and i think again it's a case of once your body knows your brain's not quitting it will do whatever it has to to get you by and if that's manifesting a giant beaver helping you dig your trench <laughs> which is what my colleague reported you know um you'll get there uh, you know um, I just like the idea that it wouldn't occur to you that it's unusual that not only is it a beaver, but it's a giant beaver. I think that is, um, that's like, yeah, it seems. Oh, like, of course. When we dis- yeah. When we discussed it afterwards, he said, what well, horrified him the most after the experience and after we'd all had a good feed and a good sleep was, uh, he found it like it was like when you're in a dream and the yeah. most wild thing can happen in the, but it seems perfectly normal. Totally He's normal. Like, all right, mate. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> oh my God. That's great. Oh goodness. But yeah, it's, um, I've, I've had a great time chatting to you. Have you got well, anything else you want to talk one, about? There's one, one last question that occurs to me. So now that you've had that experience, is there? does it inspire you to do anything next, whether it's doing something more, something different, or never again? What's you know? What's the app now? Because I got to tell you, for, this is a weird version for us. Uh, in Shark Tank, at, we were in season four. I think maybe by season five, beginning of season six, someone in our private Facebook group for Shark Tank alumni asked, how many of you still watch the show? And the answer was nobody. So um, because we know how the sausage is made and we know the backstory, uh, et cetera. So, so for you, after being into survivalist things and then having this experience, um, what's what, if anything, is next? Again, that is a, a great question. So now we're into the territory where I can't talk too much, um, but I'm definitely well up for another challenge. I'd go tomorrow. 
if I was called upon. And I've decided to adopt an always and never policy, uh, which I think is what they actually do with nuclear weapons. But I think it works with naked and afraid challenges as well, which is to <laughs> always, always be ready to go at a moment's notice, but to never assume that I will be. And that way it can keep my humility. I can maintain humility and not let hubris take over, but at the same time, have the sense to make sure that my body's tuned and whatever item I might take is prepared. And I think that's just a sen sensible way to move forward. And obviously that my feet are hard and well-equipped well and trained, ready for whatever they may face next in the future. Um, a, I love that. And B, when you said that, it gave me, um, I kind of got chills because um, I've, I've barely mentioned, I think, on the podcast, um, I had a um, what we affectionately refer to as a medical situation where uh, it actually is still kind of going on. Um, but for a period of time, for about four weeks, um, there was definite concern that I would have a very short amount of time to live. And oh, my goodness, Stephen. Oh, no, it was it was the greatest because it was sort of uh, always and never. So ah. it's a similar thing of like. I'm not expecting I'm going to die at any moment, but I'm simultaneously expecting that I could die at any moment. And it is the greatest way to live that I've ever experienced. Now, I know I'm not there 24-7. There's times where someone's doing 10 miles an hour under the speed limit in front of me. <clears throat> not happy about that. When I'm walking the dog and it's pouring rain, not so happy about that. Um, when people, I don't like it when people get in front of me, like in my way, going to airports, I want to go quickly. You know, people in my way, bothers me still. But even through that, there's an undercurrent that has changed that um, it's kind of ironic. My dad, two weeks before he died, made a comment to me. He said, I don't feel like I had died any moment. And I said, oh, I do every day. But that was more conceptual. And now it's having had this experience, it's more real. And I imagine there's a similar thing for you. It's like for always and never, that's a fine concept, but now you've lived it and it's probably more visceral more tangible the ultimate truth of our existence is that you know it's going to end at some point unfortunately mm -hmm. and it's probably going to sting a bit you know and the, the only question is you know what you're going to do in the meantime but i i mean one thing i will say is i guarantee that every meal you have from now on since you're scared you know every breakfast you every bowl of cereal you eat in the morning will taste better than the one that was the day before it is the biggest thing that's changed for me. <clears throat> exactly that. Every meal, I, I'm so appreciative of it. Even if it's you know mediocre, it just makes me crazily happy, and uh, more than it ever did. I've always been sort of a sucker for good food, but um, but every meal is totally totally delightful. As is, and this is going to sound like the opposite. As is every evening when I'm sitting on the couch with my wife and our dog watching television. It's like, I think if I knew that I was going to die tomorrow, what would I want to do tonight? Sit on the couch with Lena and Paolo and watch a good movie. That's all I need. And do you know what? That's wonderful. And do you know, would it be so bad? You know, it's yeah. going to happen at some point. And okay. on the sofa with my wife and my dog watching, watching a movie sounds good to me. It's a good um, one. A good one. I mean, yeah, uh, like, Oh, that oh, bloody hell bus. That's, that, that one's pretty good. But... <laughs> well, Sam, if people want to um, find out more about what you're up to or they want to see the show or anything else about getting in touch with you or whatever you can think of, um, uh, what can you tell people about how to do any of those things to find out more, get in touch, et cetera, et cetera? 
So you can check out Naked and Afraid. Um, it's always available. The whole catalog is on the Discovery Plus app. I believe you get a small free trial and it's a very minimal subscription charge and there's tons of great content on there. Obviously, I was season nine slash 15, episode one, Welcome to America. It also airs on Discovery Channel regularly now, I'm assuming, with reruns. Um, I'm best found on Facebook, Sam Mouser, you can't miss me. And uh, the fan group that I moderate for is fans of Naked and Afraid in Excel. You search that on Facebook, you'll find us. Tell them you want to join, answer the questions, tell them your favorite survivalist is Sam, <laughs> and we'll let you in. <laughs> and so, and just when people are looking up on Facebook, uh, it's Sam, S A M, M O U Z E R. M O U Z E R. So, to that's find. correct. Yes. Yeah. So, this has, been, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I, um, yeah, I, I I don't know what to say beyond that. It's uh, wonderful to hear what you went through, what you learned, what you discovered. Um, I hope people get inspired in some ways. At the very least, you know, try a grasshopper. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, honestly, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And in regard to that last thing that you said, you know, don't worry about things that you can't control, buddy. Yeah. And you seem like that kind of guy is really good at that. Oh, um, except again, when you know, there's people in my way in front of me, that one, uh, I don't worry about it, but um, I was, I, I did have the fantasy that that wouldn't bother me any longer. That's eh, still there. That's that one stuck. So but that, you know what, but I'm not second guessing it. I'm not making it a problem that it's still something that annoys me. It's just the way it is. And maybe it'll go away. Maybe not, but I don't really care. And that's, that's the difference. So it's unpleasant, but it's not suffering is the best way I can say it. Anyway, uh, on, on that on that weird note, um, for everyone else, thank you so much for being on this episode or listening to this episode. A reminder, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. Find all the previous episodes, all the ways you can interact with us. Um, and if you have any recommendations, any anybody you want to think should be on the show, any comments, any questions, any criticism, any any wonderful things, whatever it is, that doesn't matter. You can drop me an email, move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, until next time, go out, have fun, and live life feet first. <laughs>